We are in the midst of a series that we have titled uh, Life Lessons. And I'm excited about this series. And I wanted to uh, just kind of back up for a moment. If you were with us last week, uh, we were talking about reconciliation. And during the course of the week, there was a question that came up. And the question was, well, how do you actually go about the process of reconciliation? How do you do it? And I thought that was a pretty good question. So I said, let me address it here on the call before we move forward. And really, it's as simple as using all of the means of technology and communication that we have available. It could be a phone call. It could be a letter. It could be an email. It could be a text. It could be a face-to-face -face conversation. Basically, the goal is for whoever has the 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 whoever has the ought against you, as the old King James used to say, or the disagreement against you, that you open a line or a channel of communication where you two can come together and talk to each other. Um, and that's really the whole process. So if it's phone, email, text, whatever, tweet, uh, whatever other form of communication, we have Facebook now, um, Skype, Zoom, all these things, you have all these different measures. So basically it's just opening a channel of communication so you folks can talk to each other, okay? Now, a couple other things. Last week, we also talked about phylacteries and tassels. And if you missed last week, go back and listen to it. And I'll, I'll, I don't have time to explain what it is. But one of the things we talked about with the tassel was that it was a reminder and even the phylactery to honor God in the way that you're living or to live a holy life. And in, in talking to one of our members in the club, uh, Michael Jakes, I'll give him credit for this. He reminded me about something that and I can't I can't believe I didn't bring this up. But in the Old Testament, the, the tassel was used to remind us how to live. In the New Testament, God doesn't give us tassels. God gives us his Holy Spirit because the fascinating thing about the tassel, it could remind you how to live, but it couldn't empower you to live. And so what God has done in the New Testament, he gives us his Holy Spirit, not just to remind us, but also to empower us so that we can live the life that he wants us to live. So thank you, Michael, for bringing that up. And I think that's a, a fantastic uh, point to uh, to encourage everyone. Okay, so let's dig into this week. Um, as we get started, the first thing I wanna do is just bring some reminders. We're looking at Life Lessons, the Sermon on the Mount. Here are, here are a few things to remember and think about. Uh, first of all, remember that there was the paradigm shift. In the Old Testament, um, in the Old Testament, remember, it was about the law and living and trying to live up to the law. Where the shift was, the, the focus in the Old Testament was really about the outside person, if, if you will. Where in the New Testament, Christ is now shifting the paradigm to focusing on what's going on inside of your heart. Okay, that's the paradigm shift. We're going to see this all throughout the Sermon on the Mount. And we'll remember, I just want you to remind you of this. And why that's important is because of Proverbs, Proverbs 4.23, above all else, guard your heart for everything you do flows from it, okay? And so Jesus is making the shift and focusing on the importance of the heart. And then there's one other thing I want you to remember as a reminder is that the Jesus said, your righteousness needs to exceed that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. 
You see, remember, they focus so much on the outside appearance, okay? And God is focusing on what's inside of you. And I wanted to remind to remind that of you, uh, remind you of that rather, because as we go forward, everything we talk about, you have to kind of see it in that light, that your righteousness needs to exceed that of the Pharisees. Okay, so let's jump forward into our text. We're looking this week in Matthew chapter 5. We're starting in verse 27. And here's verse, verse 27 says, it says, you have heard the commandment that says you must not commit adultery. But I say anyone who even looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And so we want to address this topic for a moment. And I want to say a couple of things right off the bat. Um, because I want to put things in proper perspective. The first thing I'm going to tell you might seem a little strange reading this, 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 this passage, but here's the first thing I want to tell you. That attraction, especially sexual attraction between a man and a woman, is not a bad thing. It's a good thing. It's a natural thing. It's a normal thing. It's a healthy thing to have a, a, a desire for a member of the opposite sex. Okay, that's normal, that's healthy, that's the way God created us, okay? So please don't pray prayers, God, please take away my desire for, for opposite sex. It's not gonna happen, okay? Um, so I want you to understand that. So it's a healthy thing, okay? That's how God created us. Now, what Jesus, however, is dealing with here is not that lust is a bad thing, or that sexual attraction between a man and a woman is a bad thing, what he's talking about is the way you express that desire or that attraction, okay? And when you express that outside of the marital relationship, that's when it becomes unhealthy and that's when it becomes sinful. And by the way, if you are married out there, I hope you have lust for your husband or wife. Okay, Amen. it's a healthy thing, folks, if you are in a marital relationship. Okay, and, and I say that, um, and please, we're all adults, please hear what I'm saying when I say that. Okay, now let's dig a little deeper to what God is saying here, and it's really important. I want to hopefully I can uh, really bring this point out and bring it home. The lust here, I want you to think about this, is working as a catalyst. In other words, this person sees someone, right? And in their heart, their desire, the sole purpose of their desire or towards that woman or that man, because a woman can lust after a man too, is strictly for the sole purpose of sexual gratification. You look at them, you see them, and you, in your heart, you're saying, you know what, I want that person for sexual gratification. When you do that, that's when you have committed this in your heart, okay? It's as if you have decided in your heart already before the action has happened that this is what I want to do. And I want to give you two examples of this because if you go into the Old Testament and if you remember the story of Joseph and Joseph was in charge of Potiphar's house, and he was second in command. Potiphar was in charge, but Joseph pretty much ran the whole show. And Potiphar's wife had a, an attraction for Joseph. And she grabbed him and said, Joseph, I want you to sleep with me, basically, is what she said. 
And she, looking at Joseph, having that attraction, wanting and desiring him in that way, had already in her heart committed the act, even though she hasn't physically done it yet. Okay, so that's what it is. It's it's seeing it, wanting it, desiring it, and it's as you've it, in your heart you've already done it. Okay, I remember uh, Magic Johnson told this story. I believe it was Magic Johnson. I, I could be wrong, but I think it was him. When um, and he said when he used to ball. This is before I actually got married, but he used to kind of peer through the audience and look for the woman that he was going to sleep with that night once the game was over and he got back to his hotel room, okay? So that's an example of committing this lust that's in the heart before the action has actually already taken place. And notice what James says here, because Jesus kind of makes a reference to, I mean, James makes a, a reference to Jesus. And, and here's why this is so important. Notice the, the sequence. It says, but each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desires. That's their lust or their passion and entice. So they are dragged away by their own desire. Then after that desire has conceived, after that lust or passion has conceived, and by the way, where does that conceive? It's in the heart. It gives birth to sin. And then sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. You see, the reason why the lust is so dangerous is because James says it here, the desire is conceived in the heart. And when it's conceived in a heart, it gives birth to sin. And that's why Jesus would make this statement. You must not commit adultery. And even if you look at a woman with lust in your heart, you've already committed it. Now, let me go further. The Pharisees were very self-righteous people and they would, they would, um, make statements like this, and, and I'm paraphrasing or creating a statement or kind of giving a picture of what their 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 heart would be like. They would say, well, I'll, I'll lust after the woman, right? But I didn't actually commit the act. But if I had the opportunity, I would, but I didn't do it, so I'm okay, okay? So, and that's kind of the concept that this is what Jesus is saying. So you've looked at this person, you see them, and you want them, but, oh, I didn't do anything, but it's what's in your heart. And if the opportunity was right, you would act on it. And that's kind of where Jesus is dealing with. It's that lust that's in the heart. Now, what's interesting, though, is that Jesus isn't dealing just with the action. He's dealing with the attitude that leads to the action. See, that's the difference. He's looking at what's in your heart, because as we see what James says, is that what's in your heart, that desire, that passion, that enticement that's in your heart, it gives birth to sin. It gives birth to the action, all right? You know, I used to live in Brooklyn, and we now live up in, in, in Connecticut. And every time I go to Brooklyn, my wife knows I have, I, I try to go to some of the the spots that I used to eat at when I lived down there. And um, one of the places I used to go was this restaurant, Chinese restaurant. Um, and I would always, you know, uh, it's in Brooklyn on Myrtle Avenue. I think it's the best Chinese in Brooklyn. That's my own opinion, but feel free to check it out if you want. I'll tell you the name. Kum Kao is the name actually. But when I go there, I didn't even have to look at the menu. In fact, before I even got there, I already knew what I wanted. And 
I could pretty much taste it. I, I, I could almost <laughs> taste myself eating it because I've eaten it before, before I even ordered it. And that, folks, is exactly what Christ is talking about when he talks about this look of lust in your heart. It's as if you've already done it before you even get to the action of doing it. And so this lust kind of acts like a catalyst or a trigger that positions your heart in a manner that if you continue there, you will eventually fulfill what is in your heart. And that's why this is so important. You know, I watch, um, I like to watch a lot of action crime shows. I was a big 24 fan. I don't know if anyone watched 24. I was a big 24 fan. There's this other show on called Blind Spot. I, I kind of like these action crime drama kind of shows. That's just me. And a lot of times when you're dealing with these shows, sometimes they'll have, they'll have uh, scenes where there might be bombs that are going to go off. And, and they have to try to figure out how to defuse the bomb. But the thing about the bomb is there's a trigger that causes the bomb to explode, okay? And the reason why I bring that up is because right after Jesus says this in Matthew 5, 27 and 28, notice what he says in verse 29. I'm sorry, there we go. So if your eye even your good eye causes you to lust, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. Notice the second part. And if your hand, even your stronger hand, causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away, it is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. So what I'm talking about here, what Christ is talking about here are triggers, triggers. And the question I'm gonna throw out to you are, are there things in your life that are triggering you to sin? And triggers could be people, triggers could be places, Triggers could be things you watch, could be movies, could be books you read, could be songs you listen to, could be places you go. These are all potentially triggers. And so the first question I throw out to you today is, are there things in your life that are triggering you to sin? All right. In, in 29, he says, if your eye causes you to lust, if your hand causes you to sin, whatever the trigger is, is there one in your life that's causing you to do that? And if there is, you need to get rid of it. That's basically what he's saying. It's better to get rid of the trigger than to hold on to it and lose out on the best life that God has for you. All right. And so here's a fact, folks, whether you realize it or not, there are some of us there are certain places that we can't go. Might be right for some other people, but it's not right for you. There are certain people you can't hang around, right? Why? Because they become triggers. There's certain songs that you might not be able to listen to. There's certain conversations that you can't have. There's certain people you can't be around. There's certain shows you can't watch. Why? Because they become 
triggers. And so the question that I have for you tonight, it's a simple question, but do you know what your triggers are? Because if you can identify them, that's a good thing. And then what God would want you to do is eliminate them or move them from your life. Why? Because they are causing you to what? To sin. Jesus said, therefore, in, in Hebrews, it says, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us um, put off the sin that so easily besets us and run with perseverance the race that is set before us. And so one of the ways we can do that is removing the triggers that are in our life. And it reminds me of a story. There was a gentleman who was uh, realized he was starting to gain a lot of weight and, his, and he said, you know what? I need to do something about this. And so in, in, in really encouraged to, to really fight and, and start losing weight, he decided that he was going to change his route to work so that he wouldn't pass his favorite donut shop, okay? And he was so committed to losing this weight and, and fighting this fight that he even told his coworkers that he's changing his pattern and he's going a different direction. That was his trigger because he wants to avoid the donut shop because once he sees it, he just can't help himself. Now, not long after he made this declaration to his coworkers, he walks in one morning with this big box of donuts. And his coworkers were surprised and they said, wait a second, I thought you were trying to lose weight. And he said, these are no ordinary donuts. They're from the Lord. And so he said, well, what are you talking about? They're from the Lord. The man replied, he said, you know, it's really simple. Um, today on his way into work, he accidentally drove by his favorite donut shop and he saw the donuts in the window. He saw the sprinkles and the chocolate donuts and all that in the window. Like if you drive through Krispy Kreme and you see the hot donut sign on, it was like flashing, calling his name from the window. And so he, he had to pray for deliverance. And so he, so he said, he said, God, Lord, if you want me to have one of these delicious donuts, then you're going to have to give me a parking space right in front of the donut shop. And if this happens, then I know that you want me to have some donuts. And sure enough, after eight trips around the block, there was a parking spot right in front of the donut shop. <laughs> okay? Triggers, folks. I hope you understand that. There are things that will trigger you to sin. We all have them. No one is without, without that. Everyone has one. But here's the reality. If you're going to become all that God wants you to be, you have to recognize them and then realize that you may have to cut some stuff out of your life. All right. Recently in my own life, um, you know, a couple of weeks ago, we had a conversation about watching TV and what's good to watch and what's not so good to watch. And just this past week, um, God reminded me, said, you know what? There's certain things you're watching that's not so good for you. So maybe you need to cut that out. And that's exactly what I did. Why? Because in your heart, if you are pursuing God, if your desire is to be everything that he wants you to be, then that means you may not be everywhere. You may not see everything. You may not be up to date on everything. You may not watch everything, but that's okay because you're pursuing the best that God has for you. 
In fact, um, I had the privilege of being at a men's conference recently and A.R. Bernard was a speaker and he said this thing that just, just, I've been thinking about it. He says, your best life is just a few choices away. And so the question is, do you want God's best? And if you do, is there something holding you back? And if it is, are you willing to let it go? And if you do that, you will experience God's best. Amen. All right. So let's keep moving forward here. Matthew chapter five, verse number 31. Um, here's what it says. It says, you have heard that the law says a man can divorce his wife by merely giving her a written notice of divorce. I want to talk about this a little bit before I show you the next verse. Um, back in this culture of time, men had the right, and it was uh, men could only initially initiate a divorce. And religious leaders thought that they had the right that, or the, the, they could divorce their wife for any reason at all, right? If she cooked a bad meal, if she had a bad hair day, um, if, if she didn't pick the kids up from synagogue, right? Uh, they could divorce their wife. This is what they thought or believed for any reason whatsoever. Uh, the reason why they felt that way, this was a misinterpretation of Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 1 to 4. Feel free to go read through that. If you, if you want to talk about it at a later date, we can. But what they simply believed is that as long as they gave their wife a written notice of divorce, then they were maintaining their righteousness. See, again, the, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, the religious leaders, they were very self-righteous. So they could divorce their wife because they felt like, you know what, I don't want to be with you anymore. I saw someone who's a better looking woman. I want to get with that woman. And so I'm going to issue you a written notice of divorce, which was the legal way of doing it. And by doing that, then that frees me in their mind to go and marry this other person. And I'm still righteous. This is their thinking, okay? So I want you to understand that culturally because here's what Jesus said. Jesus after that says this, but I say that a man who divorces his wife unless she has been unfaithful, meaning she has not upheld her marital uh, 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 obligation, meaning she's, she's, she had committed adultery, sorry. Uh, unless she's been unfaithful, causes her to commit adultery and anyone who marries a divorced woman also commits adultery. See, what I'm dealing with here is the heart of the, the man in this case, because it's the man who um, could issue or write a notice of divorce. And so unless the wife has been unfaithful, unless the wife has committed adultery, again, um, then that, that man who divorces his wife is now causing her to commit adultery, okay? I hope I'm clear, if, if, and if, um, all right? So they thought they could just do whatever they wanted, divorce their wife, issue the notice of divorce, and then they're free. And what Jesus is saying is, no, that's not true. Here's God's plan for marriage, just so you understand this, and this is important. God never intended for divorce, all right? If you read in Matthew 19, this will go a little bit deeper. I just want to kind of give you some, some framework. But God allowed divorce because man's hearts were sinful and evil, all right? 
never intended for it, but he allowed it. Now, today, God will say that the grounds for divorce, um, rather for divorce, are one is adultery. In other words, there's only two ways God will allow you to end a marriage in his eyes, okay? One is if there's adultery. Why? Because the vow that you have committed to each other has been broken. And when that's broken, then the marriage has been damaged. Now, if adultery happens, it doesn't mean you should get a divorce. But if you do, God understands that. He allows for that. The other way marriage ends in God's eyes is by death, right? We take a vow till death do us part. But these Pharisees were so self-righteous, they felt like, hey, I could divorce you for whatever reason. And as long as I give you a written notice, I'm covered by the law. What Jesus is saying is, no, you're not, okay? If you do that, you are committing adultery if you go marry another woman, and you're causing your wife to commit adultery because chances are she may marry again, okay? Again, he's dealing with attitudes of the heart. I hope you understand this. That's what he's dealing with, okay? Um, all right. Now, this is another topic. If you want to do a deeper dive later, we'll do that. Just not doing it tonight, but we'll do it later. Okay, let's continue. Matthew chapter 5, verse number 33 says, You have also heard that our ancestors were told, you must not break your vows. You must carry out the vows you make to the Lord. I want to talk a minute about vows here, because in the Old Testament, um, God talks about vows. Um, here's what he says. And by the way, God's not saying here that you shouldn't make vows. Okay, I want to be clear here, because there are certain things that we do that require us to make a vow. For example, um, I had to go to court before. This was a few years ago, and I was required to testify in a case. Actually, I was it was a deposition at a lawyer. I didn't actually have to go to court, but I had to make a deposition. And in the course of the deposition, I had to raise my hand and vow or promise to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. Guess what I just did? I made a vow. Um, if you go get married, you make a wedding vow. I promise to love and honor and cherish and be faithful and committed to you until death do you part. That's a vow. Uh, if you decide to become a citizen of the United States, you have to raise your hand and, and make a vow. If you serve in the military, you take a vow. If you serve in government, you take a vow. If you become a police officer, you take a vow. So God's not saying don't make vows. God's saying is just keep them. <laughs> That's what he's really saying. If you make it, keep it. Now, the whole idea of vows, go back to, to the Old Testament, Deuteronomy chapter 23, I'm sorry, Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 21 to 23, he says, if you make a vow to the Lord your God, do not be slow to pay it, for the Lord your God will certainly demand it of you, and you will be guilty of sin, meaning if you don't keep it. But if you refrain from making a vow, you will not be guilty. Whatever your lips utter, this is a powerful, listen to this verse here. Whatever your lips utter, you must be sure to do. That's a powerful statement. Whatever your lips utter, you must be sure to do. Because you made your vow freely to the Lord, your God, with your own mouth. In other words, someone can't twist your arm to make a vow, right? I know back in the day, they used to have the term, the shotgun wedding, uh, meaning that you got a girl pregnant and the father is standing there with a shotgun, you better marry my daughter. Well, you can't force someone to make a vow. You make it freely. 
Here's Numbers chapter 30, verse 1 and 2. Moses said to the heads of the tribes of Israel, this is what the Lord commands. When a man makes a vow to the Lord or takes an oath to obligate himself by a pledge, he must not break his word, but must do everything he said. So in talking about vows, let's, let's take a look at this a little bit deeper. Here's what Jesus says in Matthew 5, 34. He says, but I'd say, I'm going to read this whole thing, and they'll comment. Do not make, this is 34 to 37, do not make any vows. Now, I added the word false there because it kind of brings out the meaning of what he's saying. It says, do not by heaven, because heaven is God's throne, and do not say by the earth, because the earth is his footstool, and do not say by Jerusalem, for Jerusalem is the city of the great king, do not even say by my head, for you can't turn one here white or black. So let me give you some clarity of what's going on here. The Pharisees of that day, and remember the, the mindset or the, 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 the command or the issue is we have our, our righteousness has to exceed that of the Pharisees. The Pharisees of that day, and see if this sounds familiar, I won't name anyone's name, but see if this sounds familiar, they had a real inconsistent relationship with the truth. They didn't know how to tell the truth. Um, sound like anybody we know out there? I don't know. Um, however, what they would do to make their false statements more credible or more believable is they would swear, okay? They would say, I swear by heaven or I swear by earth or I swear by Jerusalem. Um, you know, if you, if in, in today's day and age, you might hear people say, yo, I swear on my mother's grave. You may have heard terms like that. They would be careful, however, not to swear by God's name because they didn't want to uh, be blasphemous in their eyes, okay? They want to be blasphemous in their eyes. So they were making false statements. That's why I put the word false there. They were making false statements, and to make their false statements seem more believable, they would say, I swear by heaven, or I swear by earth, or I swear by Jerusalem. Or I swear by the city of the great king, or I swear by my head, or whatever. They were saying that to try to make the statement, which was not true because they had an inconsistent relationship with the truth, they tried to make their statement more believable. Okay? And that's what they were doing. So this really is a is a message about integrity and character. He's putting the spotlight on their words and on their character on their integrity, okay? Proverbs 12, okay, oh, sorry, I've got there, verse 37. Jesus simply said this, just say a simple, yes, I will, or no, I won't. Anything beyond this is from the evil one, okay? In other words, here's the question. Do you, does your word mean anything? In other words, when you tell someone, hey, I'm going to be there, does that matter? Does that mean anything? All right. Does your word mean anything? If you say you're going to do it, do you really do it? All right. That, that, that's powerful stuff because we're talking about character and integrity. Proverbs chapter 12, verse 22 says, the Lord detests lying lips, but notice he delights in people who are trustworthy. My question to you tonight is, can your words be trusted? 
when you speak and say something, do people, can people say, you know what? You said it. I know you're going to do it. I can trust you. You're trustworthy. Is that the type of person you are? The Pharisees, they weren't trustworthy. They had no character. Yeah, they would swear up and down by heaven, by earth, by Jerusalem, by all this stuff. But it was just empty words. Okay? So I ask you tonight, can your words be trusted? Because God delights in people who are trustworthy. I'll even take it a step further. God is looking for people he can trust. Trust with what? Trust with his will. Trust with his purpose. Right? Trust with his plan. Trust with his word. Trust with the gospel. Trust with character and integrity. God is looking for those people. Are you one of them? Do you want to be one of them? I hope the answer is yes. All right. Let's continue. Matthew chapter 5, verse 38 to 42. You have heard the law that says the punishment must match the injury. You've heard this before. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. But I say, do not resist an evil person. If someone slaps you on the right cheek, offer the other cheek also. If you are sued in court and your shirt is taken away from you, give your coat to. If a soldier demands that you carry his gear for a mile, carry it two miles. Give to those who ask and don't turn away from those who want to borrow. Here's what Jesus is saying, and, I, and I'm going to sum this up in a couple of words, and I have something I want to share with you. Don't go tit for tat. Someone does you something wrong, you don't return it. If you remember in the Beatitudes, one of the things Jesus said is, blessed are the peacemakers. Why? For they will be called the children of God. And this is a real stark attitude because if you think about it, notice what Jesus says. Jesus says, the law says the punishment must match the injury. That's under law. But now we're under grace. And so if you think about it, I want to show you the difference between being under law and being under grace. So I call this under law or under grace. Well, under law, we have the right. But under grace, we choose not to exercise it. Right? See, we have the right to, to punish tit for tat, but because we live under grace, we choose not to exercise that right. That's what grace does. Under law, we fight back. Under grace, we love back, right? There's a difference here, right? Difference between law and grace. Under law, we operate by the flesh. Under grace, we operate by the spirit. It's the spirit of God working in us to do this because we can't do this ourselves. Under law, we give people what they deserve. But under grace, we give people what they don't deserve. See, that's the difference between being under law and being under grace, all right? Here's the last thought. Under grace, we deal with people the way God deals with us. See, that's what, really what Jesus is saying, right? Think about how I treat you and treat them the exact same way. That's really what he's saying, right? Again, it's changing. Yes, we have the right to, but we don't. God has the right to sometimes punish us for what we have done wrong, but he doesn't. Okay? Under law, under grace. 
And so I have a litmus test for you tonight. Um, if you remember the science labs, you have these litmus tests. Here's a litmus test for your spiritual maturity. Here it is. And here's a question or your thought. How do you respond when someone hurts you? This is your spiritual litmus test. But I don't want you to think about your outward response. I want you to focus on your inward response. In other words, what is in your heart when someone hurts you? That, folks, is the sign of your spiritual maturity because eventually what's in your heart is gonna come out, all right? So how do you respond when someone hurts you? This is your spiritual maturity litmus test. How do you respond? So again, not what's outside, not what people see, what's in your heart. What goes on in your heart when that happens? And if grace starts pouring out, be saying, okay, God, you're working in my heart to change me. You know, because for some people, there was a time someone does something and it's on. You know, the Vaseline goes on the face, you start braiding up the hair, you know, you start taking off the, the watch and the, if you if you know what I mean back in the day. But how do you respond when that happens? And don't think about what's going on outside of you. Think about what's going on in your heart. Because when you do that, that's a test of your maturity. That's a test of God working in your heart. Now, it doesn't mean you're going to always get it right, but God will help you and give you more grace to do that. But it's just something to think about as you are uh, growing in your walk with the Lord. Okay. Now, Matthew chapter 5, verse 43 says, You have heard the law that says, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Hmm. Guess what, folks? It's easy to do. <laughs> it's easy to love your neighbor. And by neighbor, that could be your brother or sister. That could be just someone that you are friendly with, someone that you are have a good relationship with. Love your neighbor. That's easy. Hate your enemy. That's easy. It's easy to hate the one that's against you. But notice what Jesus says. And again, it's the paradigm shift, right? Here's the paradigm shift. I say, this is, he flips it. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Are you kidding me? But that's what he says. Why? And this is harder to do. That's why we need the Holy Spirit to help us to do it. Okay? It's not easy to love your enemies. It's not. It's not easy to pray for those who are persecuting you. It's not easy, but yet it's what God would require of us. And again, that's another sign of spiritual maturity. Here's what Jesus says. He says, in that way, notice you will be acting as what? True children of your father in heaven. So if you want to reflect God's character, love the people that don't love you. Pray for those that are against you. Then you're reflecting God's character. Why? Because what does God do? He gives sunlight to the evil and the good. He sends rain on the just and the unjust. So when you when you do that, when you love the one that is hating you, you are reflecting God's character. If you remember when Stephen was getting, when Jesus was on the cross, just to give you an example, and he's nailed to the cross, he's dying. And what did he say? He said, Father, what? Forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. If you look in the book of Acts, when Stephen was being stoned and he looked up and he saw Jesus sitting at the, sitting at the right hand of the Father, 
what did Stephen say? He said, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. You see, the character of God was coming out. You see, the character of God is on display, not when everything goes great in your life, but when everything doesn't. We see God's character, not when people are loving you. That's easy to display character. When people are hating you and you can love them back. Think of how many people have uttered the words, God, I hate you and I don't want nothing to do with you. And yet God keeps loving them back. That's the character of who God is because God is love. And so when we do that, when we love the ones that hate us, when we pray for the ones that persecute us, when we love the ones that are against us, we are displaying God's character. For, verse 46, because if you love only those who love you, well, what reward is there for that? Even corrupt tax collectors can do that. And if you're only kind to your friends, then notice the question, how are you different from anyone else? And remember earlier in verse 13 and 14, Jesus said, you are what? Salt and light. Well, how do we display that we're salt and light? Well, here's one way. Start loving the people that are against you. Start praying for those that persecute you. And here's a very interesting thing that will happen. When you love your enemy, when you pray for those that persecute you, your heart towards that person will begin to change. Doesn't mean that they won't stop being your enemy. Doesn't mean they won't stop persecuting you, but you will begin to, your attitude and your heart towards that person will change. And oftentimes, instead of having anger and, and, and venom towards that person, you begin to almost feel sorry for the person because of where they are, right? You have this, this oh, it's almost like an empathy for them because you see where they are, sympathy rather for them because you see where they are. And then our last verse for the evening, Matthew chapter five, verse 48. You are to be perfect even as your father in heaven is perfect. Now, by the way, this is not necessarily meaning that we are to be sinless perfect that's something to strive for obviously we can't do it but what he's talking about here is your maturity you need to be mature you need to be complete you need to grow up that's what he's saying here as your father in heaven in other words you need to start living a life that reflects god's character in your life what is god's character to love enemies to pray for those who persecute you to guard your heart Right? All the things that are coming out of your heart to be a peacemaker, to respond with grace. These are the things to have words of integrity and character, to be trustworthy, to be dependable. These are all the things that will reflect God's character in your life. And that, folks, is what God is looking for in this day and age that we are living in, that we who are salt and light, which strive to be perfect, to be mature, to be complete, to grow up and start reflecting and living a life that would reflect the God, God's character to everyone who's around us. Amen? Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. God, I thank you for challenging us. Um, I pray, God, that you would help us to guard our hearts, Help us to watch the things that we're pouring in. Make us aware of the triggers. 
And most importantly, God, put in us a desire and a hunger to run after you and to live the best life that you have planned for us, God, that we would run after that with everything that is in us. And I thank you for it in Jesus' awesome name. Amen and amen. Now, if you're watching us on Facebook, I want to thank you again for joining us. Uh, feel free to connect with us. We're on Facebook. As I said before, we're on Twitter. We're on Instagram and we have our YouTube channel. So uh, this, this lesson will be up on our YouTube channel at some point the next day or so or two days or something of that nature. So if you're watching us on Facebook, I just want to say thank you. Uh, be aware next week is Thanksgiving, so we won't be on live next week. So if you're watching us on Facebook, we will see you again, God willing, in two Thursdays from now. So if you're on Facebook, thank you for watching us. Uh, shout out to all the people that join us. We love you. Thanks for supporting the Bible Study Club.